wonderful to see you all this morning. I uh, hope you're having a good summer. Uh, my name's Phil, uh, and we, we're having a great summer, uh, my wife and I, because uh, a month ago, we had a little boy. Uh, and we called we call him, call him Ezra, which means, uh, some of you might know, um, helper. I think by the time you get to your third child, <laughs> what you really need is some help. Uh, we called our second child Beatrix, and that means bringer of joy. But three years on, to be honest, we've decided we've had enough of that. <laughs> and what we really need is someone who can do the dishes. <laughs> and... And things like that. So, so we're, to be honest, he, he has been very, he's been, I mean, I don't want to speak too soon. We don't believe in speaking too soon, do we? Uh, but he, he's been tremendously well behaved. Uh, and, and that's been wonderful uh, for us. Um, and thank you for all uh, the good wishes that we've received and gifts and things. It's been absolutely amazing. He's, he's a great wee boy. And it's... Uh, it's wonderful to be his dad. Um, I know, it's exciting. Um, and, 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 and in some ways, that's, a, that's an appropriate place to begin uh, this morning, talking about kids, because uh, today I'm going to be speaking uh, on the subject of legacy. Uh, and I'm doing that, uh, well, to be absolutely honest, because I've been asked to do it. Uh, <laughs> but, but also... Because uh, Hope Church is in a season of, of kind of looking at uh, things like uh, core cultural values. Now, I always think when I hear a phrase like core cultural values that we all need to drop to our knees and petition the Lord to deliver us from management speak uh, like that. And uh, so I wanted to just start a little bit by just talking a little bit, what, what, what do we mean by... Um, culture. Um, we're, we're, we're having this season where we're looking at the culture of, of Hope Church and, and what we want it to become um, in, in the years ahead. And, and, but what do, we, what do we mean by that phrase? Well, I guess the simplest way to explain it is that when, we've, when, we, when you travel um, abroad, uh, so for example, if you were to go to Spain or something, you turn up and you would immediately realize that things were different in that country. Things just, they just do things a bit differently. You know, they, they speak a different language. That would be the most obvious thing. Um, but but, but there'd be maybe subtle things. Like they, they, they celebrate festivals at different times of the year or, or they, they, maybe they eat at different times of the day or they maybe have a sleep in the afternoon. There are certain cultural differences which, which strike you as strange. Because that is not the culture, they are not the practices that you have, been, you have been used to. And you don't necessarily know the reasons why they do things differently, but the practices are just different. But here's the thing, if you were to stay in Spain for two or three years, not just two or three weeks, and then you were to come home to Scotland, a strange thing would have happened to you. Uh, and that thing is that basically you would have become a little bit Spanish. It's an amazing thing. Just by being in the country for a couple of years, and it, 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 it's not like you woke up one day and thought, 
do you know what? About two o'clock this afternoon, I'm going back to my bed. I'm making that decision. It's, it's not necessarily that you decide to celebrate a festival or, or to, you know, to do any of the things that they do in Spain slightly differently, but something happens to you. A force is being exerted upon you just by being in that environment which is carrying you in a certain direction towards being more Spanish. In that sense, I suppose, a culture is like a river. You know, if you drop a stick in the River Kelvin, you know, way out at Kosaith, I think it is, where it, where it starts, then that stick is going to be carried in a certain direction where the river is going. And the river is going towards the Clyde, about at Partick. You know, if you're watching that stick travel, it's going to move. But here's the thing, if you're not watching that stick, it's still going in that direction. If you forget about the stick and go home and go to bed and forget about that exciting day you had where you threw that stick in the river, it won't matter. The stick is still going to be traveling towards the Clyde because that is where the river is flowing. Now, this is the power of culture. This is why culture is so important because every minute of every day, whether we're waking or sleeping, it is affecting us. And it is affecting us in an invisible way that we don't appreciate because it seems to us to be normal. So if this is such a powerful and invisible and now I'm slightly freaking you out, force at work in our lives, then we'd better understand what it is and how we can shape it and how we can establish it in a healthy way among us. And what, what culture really is, it's the point where our values and our habits meet our values and our habits. It's that place where they come together. That is what creates culture, values and habits. And so that is why we are looking in this season at these core values, but also because I think, listen, let's be honest. We've all, you know, if you've sat in church for any length of time whatsoever, um, You've heard a talk on values, vision and values. Uh, and if this is your first day, this is what it's like. This is a vision and values talk. Uh, and, 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 and it can be a frustrating experience because you can sit there thinking, well, this is, a, this is lovely, but what difference is this going to make on a practical level to my life and to my experience in this church? And that is because, I think that is because we have misunderstood. We have, we have thought that just having a value will somehow create that in our environment, and it won't, unless we can marry alongside that value practices and habits and routines, dare I say, that will remind us continually of the value and allow us to participate in the value. And so that is what we're going to be talking about about 
today. And one of the three, there are three main core, there's that phrase again, core values to Hope Church, presence, honor, and legacy. And we've been speaking, um, it seems for a long time, (laughs) to be honest, on on presence and on honor. And today we're going to talk about, about legacy. And it's probably useful to start off by thinking, what do I mean by, what do I mean by legacy? Well, legacy, I think, is, is, is often used interchangeably with a word like inheritance. But I think it's different from the word inheritance, and in one crucial way. Legacy is something, yes, certainly like an inheritance that you receive from the past, but it is also something that you pass on to the future. So you sit, when you talk about a concept like legacy, you sit in the middle of something. Things have happened before you that have affected you, and there are people ahead of you who you are responsible to, in a sense, to pass it on. So that, even to talk about legacy, and this concept of legacy, is to talk about a concept of story. Because you are in the middle of something. You are in the middle of a story. And I wonder if you've thought about your life that way, being in the middle of a grand narrative. Now, stories are not things. So sometimes when you say, you know, the Bible. What an amazing story. Some people get really irritated with you. They're like, what do you mean it's a story? Every word is true. It's the word of God. And they give you that kind of funny look. Um, and, but that is not, uh, uh, the definition of a story is not that it's, that it's made up. The definition of a story is that it's coherent. That it's, that it's, it's orderly that it's going somewhere. And, and your life, you are in the middle of a story. I wonder if you knew that. You are. And stories are tremendously important. There's this beautiful little uh, story in the Bible, which is often referred to as the road to Emmaus. And it's just after Jesus has been crucified He's been resurrected, but there's a couple of disciples who are walking along this road away from Jerusalem towards Emmaus. They don't know that Jesus has been resurrected, and they are talking like, you know, their world is over. You know, everything that they thought was going to happen hasn't turned out to happen. They thought that Jesus was this great prophet. They thought that he was going to deliver Israel, and then he was crucified. And so their whole countenance is downcast, they're, they're depressed, they're, they're walking away from the promises of God, and they're thinking, well, that was it. In a sense, their, their, their mind and their thinking is in the wrong story. It's in, a, it's in a story that doesn't allow for the miracle of resurrection. And Jesus, in this, this, this lovely little section, he comes and he walks alongside them as a stranger. And what does he do? He tells them a different story. It says he opened the scriptures to him and explained 
how all of these things happened, had to happen, and that the Son of Man had to be handed over um, and crucified. And he tells them a different story. And then eventually they are prepared to have their eyes opened when they take communion with him in the house. You're in a story, and the story that you believe about yourself and about the world is unimaginably important. Unimaginably important. The story that you're telling yourself is how you process world events. You know, when you watch the news, you process what you're seeing on a day-to-day basis through a narrative that you have in your head. You know, it's, it's, there's, there are few things in life more annoying than somebody walking in on the last five minutes of a movie, isn't there? You know, and, and, the, and the reason it's annoying is because even the characters are doing maybe even the most mundane things. But because you know the story, they, they have acquired this extraordinary significance. And the person who hasn't seen the rest of the film has no understanding whatsoever of the significance of these actions. So the character could just be on, he could just be on screen opening a letter, an everyday thing. He's opening a letter, and you're sitting in the sofa going, don't open the letter! And the person sitting next to you is going, yeah, what's in the, le- what's in the letter? What's he doing? Who's this? What's that? You're like, shut up. <laughs> you know, occasionally you come across somebody, some poor soul who has never seen any of the Star Wars movies. Do you know what I mean? And, and they, you, you, I suppose you could just go along and, and watch one, but you wouldn't get it. Because you don't have the coherent, overarching narrative in mind that brings significance to the everyday little things, the mundane things like opening a letter, like entering a room, that the people who are in the know of the story have. This is the overarching narrative that we have in our heads. And let me say that we are living at a time where our culture, I think never before in the history of the world has the culture in the world provided so little story for people. You know, you'll find um, people with a kind of rationalistic worldview and you know, people who would kind of say that the Enlightenment was the kind of high point of, of civilization. And they had this idea of progress, that humanity would just progress in, you know, in a straight line towards glory. And, and, and who are kind of desperately disappointed with the state of the world right now. Kind of, kind of you know, not, not, just, not just disappointed, but, but kind of perplexed. How did, you know... Because they're, they're, the story that they have told themselves doesn't really turn out to look like it's working out the way they expected. You have kind of people who have a kind of Marxist worldview and they just see that the, think that the world is this, this continual struggle, 
you know, for, for resources. It's a cycle of exploitation and profiteering, but there's no, there's no narrative. It's not going anywhere. It's just a struggle. Or you have, you have postmoderns, which is the culture that most of, well, I suppose people kind of 35, 40 and, and younger have been particularly influenced by where there is, there, there, there is an explicit statement that there is no overarching story to life. It's not going anywhere. There's no unifying story. I mean, there's your story, and there's my story. Let's talk about your story. Tell me your story. I'll tell you mine. What's your truth? I'll tell you mine. But there's nothing that unifies, because history isn't going anywhere. That is what our culture will tell us. We're just struggling, struggling on. And so often, people nowadays, and you see all over the media, I think particularly with young people, when we think about the past, we think, oh yeah, they're the people who really screwed things up. You know? And, and when we, you know, when we think about the future at all, we, we, we often think about it in a slightly kind of depressing sense. Well, you know, I mean, the world's, you know, the environment's wrecked and, you know, good luck paying off the national debt, Ezra. <laughs> we don't necessarily see ourselves in a story that is going anywhere. And yet at the same time in this culture, we love the 100 episode box set. Do you know what I mean? We love binge-watching a big story. You know, we, we, we love a fantasy novel. Like, you know, 200 years ago, nobody read fantasy novels. You know, this is a thing that's particular to our culture. Why? It's because we don't have a story, and we're looking for one. You know, and if in the absence of a decent one, Star Wars, it'll fill an hour and a half. Great. But, and we are haunted. I think, I think our culture is, is haunted in ways that people rarely admit, but if you get them in the right moment, you know, at the end of a good party after a few drinks, if you get them in the right moment, they are haunted by the question that the great Russian writer Tolstoy asked, at the end of his life, is there any meaning in my life that wouldn't be destroyed by the death that inevitably awaits me? But the church should be the guardians, the custodians of the greatest story on earth. And we, I think, need to recover our confidence in that grand story. That the the world is going somewhere. That that Jesus is on the throne. That events, though they may seem to be random and incoherent, in fact, are heading in a direction. They're heading towards the return of the king. 
I want to say this, that it is very, very important, I think, that it, this, in, in this church we have been very keen to teach uh, on the identity of the new believer, that you're a new creation in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. I think it is very important, though, that in our desire to teach identity well, that we do not make ourselves the center of the story. Because the story dramatically shifts and shrinks when you are at the center of it. You know, the worst thing about the prosperity gospel is that personal fulfillment is where the credits roll. The end. He was happy. You know, even stories, I've, I think churches sometimes do this as well. They make the story of the, the individual church the thing. You know, the, let me tell you about the early struggles of Hope Church, you know. Um, <laughs> there's, an, there's an inviting prospect. <laughs> Who's in? <laughs> and churches can, they can elevate their own individual journey and make that the narrative that everybody runs after and, and organizes around. But that is also not nearly big enough. Not nearly big enough. You know, we can't be the hero of the story. An individual church cannot be the hero of the story. We need a bigger hero. We need a bigger story. We need a story that is bigger than the inevitable suffering that life involves. Uh, in John 16, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. Is this, is this a negative declaration, Jesus? No, he's telling you the truth. You will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We need a story that is bigger in our struggles. You will have struggles in your life if you're not having them right now. And if you can't remember having a struggle, that is mind-blowing. <laughs> Maybe think a bit harder. <laughs> this is an inevitable part of life. And when, it, when these struggles come to you, what you need is a story that is bigger. You need a hero that has overcome The story must be bigger than you. And the New Testament, thank God, calls you to something bigger and more challenging and yet ultimately more satisfying. And what is the, what is the, stru what is the, the structure of legacy in the, new, in the Bible? Well, Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 24, he says this, Truly, truly, He's telling the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When you think about 
the great people on, who have lived across history and legacy that they have left. I'm reading this, lo- this beautiful little volume that um, is called A Little History of the World. This condensed version of right b- the way back to the earliest civilizations all the way to the modern day. And it's, it's a kind of historian who wrote it as, so that he could read it to his, gra- his grandkids. It's a beautiful little book. Um, and there's a chapter on Alexander the Great. What a man! Um, unless you were facing him in battle, in which case he was horrible. Uh, but, you know, I, I, there's a man, you know, he died at 33, and in his brief life, I mean, he, he, he literally conquered the known world. Literally. Like, everywhere belonged to him. And yet, within a couple of generations of his death, everything, everything that he achieved was completely gone. I think, who, who are the, these great people of history who seem to do incredible things, but you think of the legacy of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years on, you know, here we are, bill, billions all across the world saying, he is God. My life is in his hands. What, what a legacy. What a legacy. What's his secret? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The pattern for leaving legacy is sacrifice. This is how it works. This is how it works. And what is the method for receiving legacy? The method for receiving legacy is honor. Exodus chapter 20. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. You receive legacy from the past not by saying, oh, these were the people who screwed the world up. But by showing incredible gratitude for all that has gone. But I am so glad that I am living now. You know, and not 150 years ago in Glasgow when there's a very good chance that I wouldn't have made it this far. I had my appendix taken out when I was 11 years old. That would probably have been it for me, to be honest. That would have probably been as far as I would have got before antibiotics. Um, great dad story I'm about to tell you. I trapped my daughter's finger in a door last week, fractured her pinky. I can see you all w- wincing and judging me as you're doing it. And uh, what do we do? We, well, you know, we, we live a five-minute drive from what surely must be one of the greatest hospitals on the face of the earth right now. And for free, they fixed it. I'm really glad I live in 2018. I am incredibly grateful for the people who have done so much and given us for free, for free. I mean, you'll not get a better example of that than this building. 
at this. Here's the thing. This building must have cost a fortune. Guess what? That wasn't your fortune. And yet here we are. Isn't it wonderful? I love getting things for free. Almost everything that we have in our culture, we got for free. Somebody else paid a price for it. Gratitude and honor is how you receive, appropriate that legacy from the past and you pass it on how? Through sacrifice. People sacrificed to build this building. And we get it for free, but we won't pass on anything else if we don't join them in that sacrifice. That is how legacy works. So, what, what should the people of God do to embrace this value of legacy? Well, the first thing I think is they need to really, really know their story. And a great place to start with that is the Bible. And uh, you know what's coming next? It's my plug. Uh, this year we are reading through the whole Bible from beginning to end. Um, we have a little Facebook group called Hope Reads. If you want to get involved in it, please speak to me and we will add you to that group. But knowing the story and rehearsing the story, even if you've read it again and again, going over it again, seeing a new thing, allowing God to speak to you through the story, thinking, wow, these amazing people who did this, and if they hadn't done this, then this wouldn't have happened, and whoa, here I am. That is an amazingly healthy thing for the people of God to do. We've, people have been doing that for 2,000 years. I mean, I don't know sometimes why we think that we don't need this anymore. This is an, it's, it's an amazing thing to do. Get to know that story. I'd say inside out. But also, there's, there's, there's another part of the story, which is what has happened kind of since, you know, the end of Acts and church history. I, I, I want to encourage you to dig a bit into church history. It's unbelievable the stuff that you will find. So, you know, I'm, I'm saying let's all read the Bible. Listen, that would be impossible without the incredible sacrifice of an extraordinary number of people, one of whom would be John Wycliffe. Now, here's a really interesting thing. That he, this is the man who um, first translated the Bible into the common language, into English. I mean, you would read this, his translation now and think, I've got no idea what that means. It's a bit like Shakespearean. Even before Shakespeare, he's kind of like 14th century. But, but these people paid an incredible cost. Now, when this, this is the he so angered people by translating the Bible into the common language that 43 years after his death, church officials dug up his body, burnt the remains and threw his ashes into the River Swift. <laughs> but, we read, still they couldn't get rid of him. Wycliffe's teachings, though suppressed, continued and, and spread. As a later chronicler observed, thus the brook hath conveyed his ashes 
into Avon, Avon into Severn, Severn into the narrow seas, and then into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which is now dispersed over the whole world. <laughs> Who knows would we, if we'd be reading the Bible if it wasn't for people like that who gave their lives to do incredible things for God. We, we, we're in that family. Their story is, is our story. We are part of this unfolding story. Um, when I was um, in my early 20s, I went to Turkey um, to a city called Izmir. And uh, there, just a little bit outside Izmir, we, um, we visited um, a place where I think in 80, 155, 155, um, this guy Polycarp, who was a very early bishop, was martyred. And we, they made, they kind of, they, they made him walk up this hill while the crowd were kind of throwing things at him. And, and he was a very old man at that time. And we walked up that hill, which was his kind of last journey. And then at the top of the hill, they burnt him. And a, and as we were walking up this hill, I was reading the story of, of this man who, I think, I think he was taught by somebody who was taught by the Apostle John. I mean, it's like three generations from Jesus himself. Just like, whoa, makes the hairs in your neck stand up. And I was reading, and as I was walking up this hill, and, and he said, he said he was asked to, re, to recant um, uh, Jesus, and he said, 86 years, he's a very old man when he died, 86 years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season. And after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And Polycarp was burnt at the stake and he was pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to a Roman emperor. And on his farewell, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share in the cup of Christ. This is our story. And I find myself walking up this hill as a young man, reading, almost retracing the footsteps of this great man. And in a sense, that is what the church always needs to do. Walk in the footsteps, retrace the steps of these great people in our past and rediscover their stories so that we can reappropriate it for this time. The world is starving for meaning. Young people are starving for meaning. And we have a story to be told. There's a great quote that says this, if you want to build a ship, 
Don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. This is what we need to do. We need to have, you know, encourage our our artists and our creatives to to write songs and paint pictures that, that cast a vision, that hold a vision before people of the, the endless sea. We need to, to, to win people with something more beautiful than the world can offer. And this is a story that we don't just need to, to read and to tell ourselves, but it, it's, it's a story that we need to, to put into practice. It's interesting, I was at a wedding yesterday, and it's really interesting how sometimes even the most um, kind of modern people, in that moment where they, where they get married, they often suddenly and inexplicably become highly traditional. And they want to get married in, in a traditional church and they want to wear a big white dress and they want to say the vows that people have been saying for centuries. It's like, it's, in, in a way, it's like they want their, their love to, 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 be, to be bigger than just between them and they're intended. They want it to, to join with something greater. They want it to be part of a bigger story than themselves. And I think that we have a lot of work to do, if I'm honest, in a, in a young, a very young church like this. It working out, you know, things like baby dedications. You know, we, we don't... Uh, we're kind of theologically persuaded that we shouldn't christen babies or baptize them. And yet, I can't help thinking that we are, we are really impoverished by the fact that we don't seem to know how to dedicate our children before our community to God. And, and bring them in to that family and make that part of their story. I think that we, 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 we need to, I think we could, we've got some work to do to think through things like communion. To be honest, um, I've been reading recently about um, the kind of Jewish traditions. It's extraordinary that because the, the original communion, of course, was, was a Passover, a Passover meal. And, and, and Jewish families to this day, you know, when they celebrate their Passover meal, part of that celebration involves the retelling of the story. And it is explicitly required of parents that they will use that meal to teach their children. In fact, there are, there are questions that are set out. Ask your kid this question at this moment in the meal and, and they will give you this response. 
And there'll be this back and forth conversation. And they'll ask them things like, why is it that in all other nights during the year we eat either leaven bread or matzah? But on this night, we only eat matzah. Why is it that on all other nights we eat all kinds of vegetables, but on this night we eat bitter herbs? Why is it that on all other nights we do not dip our food even once, but this night we dip them twice? Why is it that on all other nights we dine either upright or reclining, but on this night we all recline? And the child, these little children, these little children, We'll give the answers, we'll retell the story. This is why we do it. Because we were were slaves in a foreign land and God delivered us. We need to, I think we need to think about these things. How, How are we going to bring our children into this story? How are we going to bring them in to this? I Again, when I, was in, when I was in Turkey, we ended up in this little uh, town called Burdur, and they had no church in Burdur. They'd never, they hadn't, or to anybody's knowledge, they hadn't had a church there in, in over 100 years. And we were walking around this, this village praying, and we bumped into this, um, this person who had, a, who had a cross around his neck, and it turned out that they were Iranian refugees that had come over, and, you know, you, you bump into a bunch of Christians. What, what do you do? Well, what we did is we, we took communion with them. Maybe for the first time in 100 years in that little village. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about them. They didn't know anything about me. You know, I wasn't, I didn't speak their language. They didn't speak mine. But we, we knew enough to know that we were both Christians. And this is what we do. This, this is the meal that, that Jesus has given us. This unites us. It was a profound moment. I think we need to think about it. I think we've got some work to do to think about these sorts of things. So we need to think about the practices of legacy. But I also think that there is an enormous, I've kind of implied it to this point, but there is an enormous challenge on discipleship and parenting and teaching. Um, You know, after all, Jesus did say, you know, go and make disciples of all nations. Um, I don't know if you've got people, a person or a group of people in your life who discipled you at a certain moment. It's like your favorite teacher, isn't it? You're just never going to forget them. Because, because in a sense, they, they formed you. They, they made you the person that you are today. And I, have, I've, I feel like I've been incredibly privileged. I've, I've, there's a group of people that I can think of in my life who did that for me as a young as a young person, there was this one guy um, who now lives in Canada. His name was Jason Reed. And 
he, was, he worked in submarines. He was in the Navy. I was in my early 20s and really struggling with a lot of, you know, challenging personal issues. And I literally, I mean, I knew nothing about really, almost nothing about Jesus, almost nothing about grace. And I thought, I, but I thought I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a terrible Christian, I'm a terrible person, and I don't know what to do. And I thought, well, you know, if I tell somebody what, what my life looks like, they'll probably throw me out of the church. That's literally what I was thinking. And I thought, well, maybe Jason, I mean, he, good grief, he's in the Navy for crying out loud. He's got to know some realities of life. So I thought, I'll, I'll, go, I'll, go, and t- I'll go and speak to him. And I t- <laughs> so I gave him a call and I turned up on his door and just you know, gave him the unedited version of my life, cried my eyes out, and he kind of listened to me. At a certain point, he said, he told me off for saying things that weren't true. And the next night, we were gathering in a home as a kind of small group, and we thought we'll take communion together. And so we had the bread and the wine. We were all sitting around this table. And he said, he just turned to me completely out of the balloon. He just said, Phil, maybe you could just pray for us all. I think it's not weird. I mean, that happened 15 years ago. But I'll never forget it. I will never forget that moment. Because what it was... It was an experience of grace. It was an experience of grace. So this, is a, this, this was a man who knew the worst of me. And, you know, when I had feared rejection, and he did exactly the opposite. He, he knew the worst, and he thought, this is an opportunity to show grace. He had, he had four kids at that moment in his life and a busy job. But he said, I will give you an hour a week. So if you turn up at six o'clock on a Monday night, we'll meet and we'll pray and we'll chat. And I did that for about 18 months. And he changed my life. And he moved away about, I don't know, about a year after that. And I've only, I, I went down to catch up with him because he was stationed in Plymouth and now he lives in Canada and I just occasionally send him a text and he sends me a text. He will never know. I mean, I've tried to tell him, but he will never know this side of glory, what a difference he made in my life. And here is the thing. You can do that. In fact, I would say you must do that. You must do that for other people. You must do that for other people. You you must do this. This is, you know, make disciples. You must look for people who are sitting on the edge 
and thinking, I cannot tell people what the reality is of my life. You must look for people who, who barely understand Jesus but somehow have been drawn to him. Because these people, they, they need you and you will change their lives. You, you will change their lives over a beer once a week. And I think he had four, he had four kids and a busy job. I'm sure there were other things he could have done with it. I didn't understand that. I had no kids, no wife, you know, all the time in the world and thought I was really busy. Do you know what I mean? I was a classic guy in their early 20s. I had no idea the sacrifice that he was making. But unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it can't bear fruit. But his life bore fruit in me. And your life can bear fruit in other people. Kids work, very briefly, kids work needs to be a huge priority. Even more, I think, than we make it. Um, Jesus said the children should not be prevented from coming to him. Let's think about that for a long, long time. Proverbs says folly is bound up in the heart of the child. We also need to think about that. Children need to be taught Seriously, there's a lot of kind of like romantic philosophy, I think, in, in kids' work sometimes in the church. Like, you know, the kids will just, you know, they'll just, they're just, they've just got this sense of God and they don't need any help. You know, I mean, what? I just wonder if these people have ever actually parented children. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, children need to be taught a lot of stuff. Um, and of course, evangelism is, is building a bridge, uh, and we all—that is a huge part of legacy that I don't really have time to touch on. There's an amazing um, poem which I just want to end with, because um, I'm over time. Um, that I was taught by a man who educated me. So this is legacy. This is his legacy. He died last year, but he taught me this poem. It's called "The Bridge Builder." This is your. Jo- this is our job. Okay. Go home, Google it, put it on your fridge. The bridge builder, this is your job. An old man going a lone highway came at the evening cold and grey to a chasm vast and deep and wide through which was flowing a sullen tide. The old man crossed in the twilight dim The sullen stream had no fear for him. But he turned when safe on the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, said a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your strength with building here. Your journey will end with the ending day and you never again will pass this way. You've crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build this bridge at evening tide? The builder lifted his old gray head. Good friend, 
In the path I have come, he said, there followed after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way. This chasm that has been naught to me, to that fair-haired youth may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I am building this bridge for him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this extraordinary story that you have invited us into. Your story, Lord, for redeeming this world. Lord, that though there is brokenness in the world, you are, and in ourselves, you are resolutely committed to restoration and you will not quit. Lord, I thank you for the extraordinary privilege of being invited into your story, into your, your church. Lord, you are the hero of this story and you are the leader of this church. Father, I pray that you would give us grace to rediscover a confidence in this extraordinary heritage that we have and to give ourselves sacrificially so that it could be passed on. Lord, help us to be a generation that steward this extraordinary legacy well, build on it and pass it on to our children and those that you will invite into the story. In Jesus' name. Amen.